emotional guy, try not to get visibly emotional, but man, I'm just done with that, okay? Um, when it comes to the Lord and in His might and His majesty and how it, He's able to just turn me into a blubbering little baby, like I'm just embracing it. I'm okay with it. It's just who I am now, and uh, it's a good thing. And so uh, I want to echo just a little bit of that to say, man, this church, what a, what a beautiful family of God that we are and how much I just want you to know that we love you and I love being a part of this. I'm, I'm so grateful to see so many more of you here that we, we're coming back together and we're doing this thing together. Uh, we're worshiping the Lord as one. And it's just, there's just something about it that it's just, it's hard for me to even adequately put words on it that it's just it fills me up it feeds my my soul uh, and, and I, I believe that is by design I believe that is absolutely the way that the Lord intended it to function that we are a family we are uh, a part as children of the Lord together we we are a part of his family and when we when we join together like this there's just something so so unmistakably sweet about it that you just you can't substitute it with anything else and so I just I hope you know that I hope you feel that and and that you you can really just relish in that as well uh, and and just give God absolutely all of the glory for it amen all right so we're going to jump into Exodus here in just a minute Exodus chapter 1 so if you have your Bibles go ahead and open them up Exodus chapter 1 we're going to be in verses 8 through 22 so uh, a little bit of a, a lengthy passage of Scripture, but a lot of it's going uh, to kind of compact down together. Uh, and as you're turning there, uh, allow me, if you will, to go ahead and, and pray, and then we'll get started. Uh, Father God, we just thank you so much for, man, just the, the expression of worship that has taken place here already this morning, just in so many different functions, and help us to, to realize and to understand and to, to take it into our own hearts that we don't merely worship you with the songs that we sing, um, but we also worship you by, by bringing up the, the children that you give to us, that you entrust to us to, to raise up uh, underneath your teaching, uh, that that is a form of worship unto you, Lord. And, the, and, and when we pray corporately together like this, that that is a means of worship unto you. Uh, and just like as we see in the Old Testament, the, the different times when it's the sacrifices that are being made are referenced as, as a sweet uh, smell, as, as, as something savory to you that you enjoy, that you delight in. I pray that our worship would be that this morning and that we would see that and we would feel that and we would delight in it along with you, that we are glad to offer our worship up to you through the singing of, our, of, of songs that honor you, uh, of prayers that we lift up to you, Lord, in dependence to you, and the proclamation of your word and the truth that it holds. So I pray, Father, that you would just give me the words to speak, that you would keep me just really humble and, and lowly submitted before you, just prostrate, Lord, just, just trusting in, in the power of your Holy Spirit to come and move amongst us and to speak to us and to, to teach us and to convict us and to spur us on into action, Lord. And, and we believe in faith that all of those things are true. And so we trust in you this morning. We lift up your name high. We give you praise and honor, Lord. And just thank you for your word. We give you praise and ask this in your name. Amen. All right, church. Uh, so we, uh, we're going to actually spend 
pretty much all of our time in Exodus, right? So the joke was made last week, like we're finally getting into Exodus, but then we kind of didn't. But we are today, right? So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 1. But before we get there, uh, let, let me say a couple of things just uh, to, to set a little bit of, of context, uh, just in case anybody needs to be caught up. This first chapter of Exodus is, is really serving the purpose. It, it really kind of sets the stage for the rest of the book, right? The book of Exodus is a remarkable story that we believe factually took place in history. And so we see this, this story that, that if I could say it in these words, it almost seems unbelievable, right? If it weren't for God. It almost seems unbelievable because it's, it's so remarkable. It's so grand. And so this first chapter is setting the stage for the rest of the book. And it does so in, in describing, as, as JT laid out last week, uh, in the first seven verses of the chapter, it, it, does, it creates this connection to the narrative of the book of Genesis, right? The, the, the family line of, of Jacob and then on to Joseph and his brothers and all of the things that took place leading up to the story that we find in Exodus. So the first seven verses are a connection to the narrative of Genesis. And then we get into our passage today, which is our, our verses 8 through 22, which we see really, really sets the stage for what's coming next, and that a, this, this form of opposition is coming that uh, has arisen under a, a new Pharaoh, right? Because if you remember, uh, Joseph uh, was, was found in great favor to the, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh that he was underneath, and he was... The, the Egyptian dynasty or empire in that time was really probably the, the most powerful nation in the known world. And Joseph was directly under the Pharaoh. So he was the second most powerful person in the world, arguably. Great favor with the king of Egypt. But now some time has passed and, and a new king of, of Egypt, a new Pharaoh, sits on the throne. So picking up where we ended last week... Uh, Joseph and, and all of his brothers have died. But the covenant promises that we see in the book of Genesis, right, which, which the last three weeks uh, JT has laid out really well for us to understand these covenants that God made with man, the covenant promises that God made, they're living on, they're still being fulfilled through the descendants of Joseph and his brothers, people who are still living in Egypt. They're still there. And those who were described as, in, in verse 1 of, of Exodus chapter 1, they were described as sons of Israel. But now we're going to see, if you were to look at verse 7, they're now referred to as the people. So they've gone from sons to a people of Israel. And that means that the people greatly increased in number while they were in the land of Egypt. Just as God had promised. He told Abraham, he said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing to all. That's Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. And they're fulfilling that. They're also fulfilling the command that God gave in the garden in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, when he says to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So they are doing exactly the thing that God instructed and designed for them to do. They're, they're living, they, they have been living in plenty, they are multiplying, but something happens. So, Genesis chapter 1, 
Starting in verse 8, let's see what happens. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So let's stop right there real quick. This, this new king, he's, he's not named, right? We don't know who he is. We don't know for certain, that is. But this entire account of Exodus, it never identifies who Pharaoh is by name. And so this, of course, as, as you might imagine, has led to a great deal of speculation and study regarding the date of the Exodus, right? Because we, we, we find dates by, by uh, who's ruling. And so, so we don't really know for sure. However, there's many biblical historians that think that this is a completely new dynasty. So the dynasty that Joseph was under, this is a completely new and separate dynasty from that. And if that doesn't make sense to you, it just means it's a new rule. It's a new reign. It's, it's taking the things of old and completely discarding them and, and starting over years, decades later. And so it says that, that Pharaoh, will see, he, he doesn't know Joseph. But as, as I was about to say, that in, in this new dynasty, this, this new king is often considered, not always, there's still, there's still a lot of conversation surrounding it, but it's often considered to be uh, Seti I, who reigned from 1318 to 1304. So that's just for the type A historians in the house that really like to get down uh, you know, into the weeds. And the reason they think that is because he was the son of, of Ramses I, and Ramses I was the one who was responsible for founding an entirely new dynasty in Egypt. So it seems to make sense so far. He founded the 19th, the 19th dynasty. But then we'll see in a couple of weeks when we get there, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, it tells us that during those many days, the king of Egypt died. And so that would mean that the son of Seti I, which was Ramses II, who reigned from 1304 to 1237, would have been the Pharaoh during the Exodus. Which seems very probable since the, the store uh, treasure cities that we'll see in a moment that, that the Israelite people built for Pharaoh, one of those cities was named Ramses. Right, so it seems very probable that, that this is the time frame that all of this is happening in. And we also know that Seti I, he had a very short reign. He did not reign as king over Egypt for very long. So that gives us a little bit of context of, of what's going on here. So let's pick back up in verse 9. And he, being Pharaoh, said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Okay, pause again. So as I've said, the Israelite people, they've, they've, they've risen to great prosperity. They've multiplied during this lifetime uh, underneath Joseph and then and leading forward. They've enjoyed the land freely. They were given a land that was referred to as Goshen, which was a very fertile and lush region. And their increase in prosperity, though, is now being viewed by this new king with, with resentment, with insecurity, with, with concern, with fear. 
And since this land that they were in, this, this, this region of Goshen, it's set between, if, if you know the layout of the land, it, it's set between really where, uh, what is modern at Cairo, so Egypt and, and northeast of there, which would have been the land of Canaan. So there were, there were multiple uh, warring tribes and factions that were in that region. And this land of Goshen really set as a border in between that. So it seems to make sense for Egypt to fear that the Israelites, they, they might join a possible invasion. It doesn't seem outlandish to, to imagine that, that they would consider doing this if opportunity arose. And, and in that, he's, he's concerned that in this possible invasion from foreign attacks, that, that they would join that side. And, and one of two things, either rise up in power, conquer and leave, or maybe even conquer and, and take the region for themselves. Now, all of that is just kind of peering between the cracks. That's reading between the lines. We don't know for sure um, that, that any of those things would have ever happened, but that's the fear that, that the Pharaoh has. And so, therefore, he seeks to enslave them and to prevent that. And what we see Pharaoh doing is he begins to create this narrative that the potential downfall of the Egyptian empire will actually be because of the Israelite people. You know, that there are too many, and if they don't do something about them now, then they will fight against them and they will escape from the land. And while, hear me say, I don't in any way agree or, or condone with all of the actions that are going to come later in, in the, the, the st story of Exodus, I can certainly understand how and why Pharaoh would think that. It doesn't seem improbable for us to imagine. So, so let's look at verse 11 to see what he's going to do about it. Verse 11, Therefore they, being the Egyptians, they set taskmasters over them, the Israelites, to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So this description of the taskmasters here who were put in place to oppress the Israelites, understand something, church. It, this, is, this is part of fulfilling the words of God. Right? That this covenant that, that God made with Abraham which foretold that his offspring would reside in a foreign land and, and that they would be afflicted for 400 years. All right, Genesis chapter 15. These taskmasters, they, they, were, given, they were put in place uh, to use whips and to, to punish and to oppress and to spur on the slow-moving Israelites to build this empire that would come. And so it was under the crack of these whips and and the, the, the intense oppression and persecution that was being enforced on them, that all of the royal buildings of ancient Egypt were built, and they were built by slaves. And on some of these buildings, we know that this was the case because there were even inscriptions that were placed on the buildings that said that no free Egyptian citizen had engaged in its construction. So this new empire, right, this new dynasty is being built entirely by Israelite slave labor. And they built for Pharaoh, as it said, two fortified treasured cities in the land of Goshen, which were liable to invasion. 
And again, just uh, a little bit of fun uh, history. These, uh, these two fortified cities are... Uh, sorry, I'm in place here. Uh, they're accepted today. Ramses is believed to be a, a city by the name of Cantir, which is in this north uh, eastern delta, which is about 95 miles northeast of modern-day Cairo. They've done excavations there. They've, con- they've pretty well confirmed this identification. And the neat thing about it is there's a factory there, or there was a factory there, uh, if you can call it that, that's been discovered that created these decorative glazed tiles that they used to design the interior of Egyptian buildings. And on these tiles, uh, the name of Ramses is inscribed on many of them. This other city of, of Pithom is believed to be an archeolo- archaeological site. Uh, there's not a town there. It's about 17 miles southeast of, of Ramses. And so these supply cities, as I said, they stood ready to supply arms and food and fortification for troops that were called up in the, in the event of an invasion from the northeast. But that's not all. Verse 13, let's keep going. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all, in, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So understand that the Israelites, they're not merely working as indentured service, servants for the Egyptians. They're, they're not gladly or gleefully working in this role. They're being subjected to a very cruel and oppressive slavery that threatened their very lives and literally the, the, the potential existence of them as a people, as a nation. They're not technically a nation yet, but we know based upon God's promises they're going to become a mighty nation, which we'll, we'll come back to in just a little bit. But in all of this, I want to ask a question. And, and, and that question is, where was God in, in all of this? All right, as God's people suffered under oppression, where was God? Was he, was he absent? Was he asleep on the job? Was he incapable of doing anything to offer any kind of legitimate help? Right, and I offer up these questions rhetorically knowing full well, no, absolutely none of those things are true. Right? Our, our God is much bigger than that. God was not sleeping on the job. In all of this, God's mysterious wisdom was still very much at work. He said that the Israelites would be sojourners, which just means temporary residents in a land that isn't yours. Right? So God said that his people, the Israelites, would be sojourners in a land that is, and that they would be servants there. And that this suffering of God's people would be used for specific reasons to bring judgment upon Israel, which will, or excuse me, upon Egypt, which we'll see, and also to bless Israel. Again, all of this is in Genesis chapter 15. You go back and you can read through this, this covenant that God made with Abraham. And he said all of these things would come for, this, for these purposes. But nevertheless, 
understand that, that our sufferings that come by the way of the Lord, by, by the Lord's allowance, if you will, those sufferings work together for His salvation purposes because they are very much a part of His eternal plan. So, remember in the case of, of Joseph, which, which JT shared last week, right? he said to his brothers who, let me remind you, sold him into slavery, went back home, told their dad, who loved Joseph very much, that Joseph was dead, Right? And then, and then what happened from there? Joseph was given to be a servant in the house of Potiphar, rose up to, to, to favor and honor in the house, was wrongfully accused, was thrown into prison again. Right? Interprets some dreams for uh, some workers in the house of Pharaoh. Earns a little... A, what, what seems to be favor, or at least coming favor, but is then forgotten. And he's left there in, in prison. And then, eventually, as the story goes on, he rises up to great power and great, great honor. But, but what does he tell his brothers when, when he meets them? He says, as for you, and all of those things that happened to, to him, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. Oh, but what comes next? But God meant it for good. Right? So we see God still very much at work behind the scenes in Joseph's life, and that's going to, to bleed over into the same scenario with, with, the, with the Israelites in Egypt. You know, we, we have all encountered sorrow and heartache and loss at some point in, in our lives. And if you haven't listened to me, church, you will. And I don't say that disparagingly. I'm just telling you, if you haven't, then praise God for that, but, but you will. We all experience and encounter sorrow and heartache and loss because we live in a fallen world that is affected by sin. It doesn't mean that God isn't still in control, that His power is somehow impotent and unable to help. No, God is still very much at work behind the scenes. And so whether it's not getting a, a promotion that you felt like you so desperately needed, or if it's receiving really gut-wrenching uh, report from the, the doctor that you prayed so fervently against, or if it's the passing of a loved one, or fill in the blank. Whatever the scenario is, it's heartbreaking to go through this process at times. And sometimes you might feel that God is far, far away, that He's not involved in, in the pain and the heartache that you're feeling. And the Israelites were bound to have felt that same thing when they were, when they were in bondage and slavery in Egypt. You don't see a change in your situation, or you don't, you don't feel like there's an answer coming to your prayers. And it's in, in these times, understand, church, that God is actually very much at work behind the scenes. He's working in and through your circumstances. Or to put it another way, as, as Denny said to me just recently, uh, if you could see what God is doing in your life, you'd sit back, relax, and smile from ear to ear. The thing is, in, in all of this, all of this forced labor and, and abuse that, were, that Pharaoh was putting on to the Israelite people, it still, it still wasn't enough. Pharaoh remained determined to, to put an end 
to the force of the Israelites. So let's pick back up in verse 15. We're going to read a longer section this time, going through 21. Verse 15, it says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and he said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt, with, dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So we see that the, the midwives, uh, they refused the commands of Pharaoh. And when they did this, Pharaoh took a more uh, direct route, which we'll see in a moment. But first he commands the Hebrew midwives to, to kill all the male babies when they're born. So if you'll notice something, and we'll see again here when we, when we get to verse 22, Pharaoh's never changing his, his, uh, his, his intent Right? He's just amping up each time. He never stops to, to reconsider the thing that he's doing. He just, he just notches it up a little bit more each time. So he's, he's staying the course. He commands the Hebrew midwives uh, because the, the, the forced labor and the oppression, it's not, it's not doing the job. Right? They're still multiplying in numbers. So now he commands the, the Hebrew midwives, kill all the male babies as they're being born. And when it comes to these Hebrew midwives, it's, it's interesting to note that we don't really know in, in the original language, we don't know the clause that's, that's being used, whether it, it is translated as Hebrew midwives or midwives of the Hebrews. And the reason that's significant is because it could be Egyptian midwives who are doing this, which might not, probably a little difficult for some, but might not be as difficult for all. But what we know is that Scholars in biblical language, um, they're not 100% on, on the clause, but we know that Shifra and Pua are both Hebrew or at least Semitic names, and they're most definitely not Egyptian names. We don't see any similarities in the language at all. So it's pretty safe to assume that these Hebrew midwives are Hebrew women who are serving as midwives to Hebrew women. So the reason I point that out is that, that means that Pharaoh is ordering his Hebrew slaves to perform an extremely wicked and dastardly deed on their very own people. So, I mean, he is after it. He wants to accomplish this thing no matter what. But we see the Hebrew midwives, they don't do it because they fear the Lord more than they fear Pharaoh. And God blesses the midwives and it may not be because of what is, was most likely. If it wasn't uh, a full lie, it was a half-truth. And I know we say those are the same things. Like we don't, we don't know all that was relayed back to Pharaoh from the Hebrew midwives. We just know they can't do it. They fear the Lord more than they fear Pharaoh. 
right? And, and if you think about that, how, how do we take that to today and, and implant that into our own lives? What things do we wind up fearing more than we fear the Lord? And, and we, we submit to those things rather than submitting to God. But in this instance, we see that the Hebrew midwives, they just, they can't do it. They fear God too greatly, and as a result, God blesses them. They didn't follow the command to kill the Israelite sons. Rather, they, they allowed them to live. So again, Pharaoh's plans, they are not coming to fruition in the way that he desires. And so this ironic result is still playing out in Pharaoh, trying to diminish them in numbers, and yet they're still increasing in numbers. God is still blessing them. So that means God is still very much behind the scenes at work, fulfilling his purposes, his plan, his will. Nothing on earth will ever be able to thwart the plans of God, which we're going to see again and again play out all throughout this story. God's gracious blessing continued to be with his people despite these horrific circumstances that they were encountering. Let's read the last verse, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people. Understand, right, if you've seen like Prince of Egypt, which we know is not historically accurate, but it's still a really great movie. In the movie, it's... it's Egyptian soldiers who are going out to, to perform this deed that we're about to read. But this says that he commanded all of his people. Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So when the midwives refused... <clears throat> Pharaoh, again, he, he ramped it up. He took a more direct route, commanded all of his people in his empire to kill every newborn Israelite son by throwing them into the river. And so just, if you will, try to imagine that scene, right? I took some time to just think about that because I think sometimes we just quickly read through Scripture without um, really trying to take the whole, the whole thing in. And so just think, if you will, of the, the fear that these families, the, these Israelite families would have felt. Where could you go? Especially if you were an, an expectant mother. Like, how would you feel? All right, and you, and you, don't, you don't know if you're going to have a daughter or a son, but then you, you have the son. You cherish it. You, you, you want to hold on and, 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 and keep this child close to you. And, and how would you feel in all of this? to try to keep them hidden, to try to keep them quiet, to be looking over your shoulder and listening carefully every time you, you heard a sound and how it might be someone, some unknown person that might be approaching. I just think about the, the fear that must have been within these people. And they would have been right to fear because Pharaoh is executing a, a slow genocide against an entire nation of people. And when he commanded this of all his people, I, I, I believe that his desperate desire to, to kill the Israelites, it's fully out in the open now. There's no denying it. But still, in all of this, understand that, that God is at work behind the scenes to keep his promises and to reveal his glory. And man, is he going to do that? 
realize that even though this story, it only takes us minutes to read through. This is happening over the course of years, the span of decades. And so God is still at work over the span of decades, bringing about his will. And you know, we say that we know, or I'll, I'll, I'll do this. I say that I know that God is at work in my life. I believe that God is sovereign. Nothing thwarts his plans. I, I, I say with my mouth that I believe that God is at work in every part of my life. But isn't it hard as God's children? It is for me. I'll, I'll share. It's, it's hard for me at times to, to really see and believe the things that he's up to. Because I'm limited in a way that God is not limited. I don't know all of the plans that he has for me. And in those plans, I don't know what things will come. I don't know what things I will have to endure. I don't know what lessons may come for me to learn along the way. But I trust that God is good and he, has, he is still at work. And that is the case in, in this this story. So in all of that, what I would want to do, if I, could encur- if I could ever encourage you, church, at all, in any direction, it, it's to feel small. I want you to feel small. And I know that that seems to be the exact opposite of what the world tells you, right? That you should be strong, that you should be independent, that you should be autonomous, that you should not need help from anyone ever that you should be the person that you want to be, be strong, be powerful. But I'm telling you that you should be small. Because there is so much more rest in feeling small before God than there will ever be in trying to feel strong. And what I mean by that is, is that in coming to the realization, hear me, you will face troubles you will face heartache and struggles. And again, I don't say that to discourage you. I say that so that you will know that in those times when you, you will face heartache and, and you will not be able to stand underneath it because at least in your own strength, you won't be able to stand because your, your own strength simply will not be enough. And it's at that moment that you know that you might be small, but but you serve a really big God. Amen? You serve a big God. And so to understand that that God knows all and that we don't, that's something that we have to grow in. And He intends for us. Understand, He wants us to grow in that. And when we do, we're brought to a place of trust and rest and peace. Peace. It sounds so cliche when we say it, a peace that surpasses all understanding, even though it's in Scripture. I mean no disrespect, but we say it as if some, at times we don't, we don't really mean it or we don't really understand what all comes with that. But when you enter into this place where you understand that God knows all and you're able to have trust and rest in that, it brings a peace that you can't explain, a peace that you don't understand, how it makes you feel as confident in the Lord as you do. You just know that it does. And that's because of who God is. I don't know how the Israelite people could have endured all of this if they sought to only rely on their own strength and not the Lord's. So when it comes to trusting God, and that means believing and trusting in the reliability of His Word, 
his ability to do what he says, his strength to do what he says he's going to do. Understand that trusting God is more than just a feeling, church. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, like, don't trust your feelings all of the time because I promise you, there will be times that your feelings, they will lie to you. Trusting God is a choice. It's a choice to have faith in what he says, even when your feelings and your circumstances would have you to believe something entirely different. It's a choice to trust and have faith in God. Your feelings, your circumstances, listen, they matter. They matter very much. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't pay attention to them. And I think God cares about those. He gave us the emotions that we have. But it's those things alone, they're, they're not reliable enough to base your life on. And they can change in an instant. But God doesn't change. Right? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He is worthy of our trust. And so Pharaoh... For all of his attempts to destroy the Israelites, he finds himself serving the purposes of God, even in the God that he hates. He's he's fulfilling the purposes of God. Every command that he gives, every step that he takes, everything that he does to try to control and destroy are simply serving God's overreaching purposes to glorify his own name and to make his name known to the nations to ransom his people from oppression. And that is the story of the gospel, is it not? These are the things that he's bringing about when we think that he's absent and uninvolved in our circumstances, in our struggles, in our hurts. In addition, I think in this passage it shows us how in history the conflict that started in the garden, right, with uh, b- between the seed of the woman and, and the seed of the serpent, it, it's continuing on. It tells us that, that those who rebel against God persecute those who seek to follow God. That's playing out in the story of the Exodus. Opposition and oppression of God's people, it's what comes from rebellion against God. And while not nearly as, as severe As in other parts of the world, I think this is something that we even see in in our own country. And this takes different forms at different times, whether it's through the the seduction away from Christ, right, with with worldly pleasures and vanity and all of these things that distract us from the Lord, or if it's just through deliberate persecution of God's people. I think we see that again and again. And opposition and oppression of God's people, uh, of God's ways, are, are what comes from a world that hates God. Covenant blessings bring opposition from those who are outside of the covenant. And the Israelites are inside of God's covenant. The Egyptians are outside of God's covenant. It doesn't mean that there won't be this mysterious inclusion you know, as we, as we continue to read through the, the story of, of redemptive history all throughout the scriptures, but in this point in time, the Israelites are the covenant people of God, and they're being oppressed by those who are outside of the covenant. They were fruitful, and they multiplied, and this brought increasing opposition from Pharaoh. 
The more God blessed them, the worse it got for them. And so likewise, I think as, as churches grow, we will attract opposition from, from our, the, the enemy, who is Satan, and from rebellious sinners. But here's the thing I want you to know in that, that, that God is greater than any power on earth. And in Him, we will overcome all opposition. Even, hear me, even if it doesn't look like you think it should. In God, we will overcome all opposition that we will ever face because God sits on the throne and He rules in power and might and authority. He is greater than any power on earth, even Pharaoh. And so God... He blesses his people despite opposition and persecution. And while we may endure, be it different, while we may endure opposition or persecution or trials or tribulation, just know that God has already overcome the world. And he did it in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. John 16.33, Jesus tells his disciples, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Christ has been given all power and all authority over all of the world, so Christian, take heart. Be strong in the Lord. Trust Him. The glory of God is... As we see, we'll see in the story of the Exodus, the glory of God shines in the persecution and the oppression that the Israelite people are enduring. The, the severe treatment that they had to bear underneath the hands of the Egyptians, it served as a necessary discipline for them. And I know that may seem strange that God uses oppression and mistreatment from others as a means of discipline for His, his children. But understand that these things come from the Lord who, who is he's wonderful in his counsel and he's right and correct in all of the things that he does. So the children of Israel, right, they had settled down in the land of Goshen. It was a land of plenty. They, they, they were living well. And, and it's safe to assume, I think, that they might have just thought to themselves that they had entered into their rest that it's believed that they had taken on many of the customs of the Egyptians. We have historical accounts that some Hebrew people even integrated Egyptian religion into their own worship. And they may have even started to look somewhat indistinguishable from the Egyptians in certain regards. So why is all of this significant? Because this is not the plan that the Lord had for them. This was not the covenant that God had made with Abraham. And so we see that, that their hosts in Egypt have now become their masters, and they treat them cruelly. And Goshen is no longer dear to them. And they're treated like strangers, and I think they feel like strangers. And now they hear the taskmaster's commands, and they feel the crack of the whip on their backs, and they're forced to perform constant hard labor and slavery. They are being oppressed and I have to imagine they think far less of Egypt than they used to. And this is what the Lord 
had designed for them. Because he never intended his people, Israel, to be absorbed into another family. He didn't tell Abraham in the covenant that, that they would be adopted into another family. No, God made a covenant with Abraham. He said he would give him a family, and from that family they would become a mighty nation of their own, a nation that we are now today a part of. All right, the story of the gospel, we are included into that family, into that people. And so would, have, would that have happened if the Israelite people had stayed in Egypt? So even if it seems light compared to the Exodus story, think of, of our own oppression, our own trials and, and, and heartache today. They are permitted by God for our good. And I know that seems so opposite of everything that we would want to think, imagine, or believe, but those things, those, those forms of oppression or, or trials, tribulations, heartache, struggles, they are by God's design. They are permitted by the Lord for our good. Just as it was in, in Israel's case in this story. Because this life that we live now, it is not our rest. It is not our home. And we should long for a better land than this. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do all that we have with what has been given to us to strive to live a life worthy of the Lord in, in the here and the now. But, but we ought to long for that land, for that home that God has for us. So the whip of, of persecution, it's helpful because it makes us learn that, that this isn't our home. And it moves us along to, to desire that land of, of liberty and joy that, that the Lord has for us. So, so church, hear me know that you're, you're going to face struggles and trials because we live in a fallen, sinful world, but God is still very much on His throne. He is still very much in control of absolutely everything that is happening in your life. You have not been forgotten. You have not been forsaken. God has not forgotten you. He is, he is not incapable or incompetent of, of helping you in your time of need. He is still God. And so we should delight in that. We should take comfort and rest in that. And that should bring us to a place where we have a peace that we just can't explain or even understand at times. And that's God, is it not? We're going to do tonight a, a, a class, a, a theology class on the doctrine of God, and, and we're going to talk about this word, this, this theological word, the incomprehensibility of God. Like, we can't fathom how big God is, but yet we can still know Him. And that's, in and of itself, a blessing, a treat, a gift from God. Right? That, that God is, is this mighty and majestic being that is unknowable and unapproachable and why would he want to to come down and to be involved in in our seemingly small and insignificant lives yet he does 
because we are his children and we are made in his image. We are image bearers of the Most High. Do you understand how significant of a title that is? And so in that, I say all of that so that you will know, Christian, God is on the throne, so take heart. Trust him. Even if you don't know how you're going to deal with tomorrow, God knows. He sees. And he will supply. So we trust the Lord, even when it doesn't seem to make sense. Even when we think that God is in the wrong for allowing the things to happen in our lives that he does. And that's the sovereignty of God. We trust in that. We rest in that. We find peace and security and strength in that. Be small and serve a big God. In all of this, the thing that I'll I'll close with this, to those who have experienced salvation from this God that I just described, then take heart. Be confident in the Lord. But for those who haven't experienced salvation in this God, listen carefully. And I'm just going to share the words spoken by a pastor who has long since departed by the name of Charles Spurgeon who said it so well, so I'm not going to try to say it better. If you haven't experienced salvation in God the Father, then listen carefully to these words. While the men of God flourish in adversity, the men of this world, those who do not know or belong to the Lord, the men of this world are ruined by their prosperity. You have your troubles, but you have no God to resort to. You will have many sore plagues than you have ever yet been visited with. But if you continue in unbelief, you will still have no God to trust in. Do you not want God to be your helper and Christ to be your friend? If you do, then on the cross behold the Savior. Turn to Him, trust in Him, rely upon Him, and then from this time on, the Lord of hosts shall be with you. So if anyway that, that doesn't make sense, here's really clearly what it means. That you may not be facing struggles in this life that are significant. You, you may feel a life of prosperity, but if you don't know the Lord, the day will come when your life will end. And when he said sore plagues will come, that's when they will come. Right? That's when the, the real struggle, trouble, these are words that, that aren't even adequate. They're not big enough. All of the pain and anguish will come at that time and, and you will have no God to resort to. You will have no comfort. You will have no peace. You will be eternally absent from this God that I have been speaking of this morning. So I, I plead with you, if you are here today and you do not know that God, then do not leave this building until you do. Surrender to Him. Trust in Him. And your life will be plentiful. 
And I say that understanding like it doesn't mean that you will live a life of ease and prosperity in the here and the now. But man, there's a land, there's a home that is waiting for you. And you, and you want to reside there because that's where the Lord is. Right? And, and I, I, I want to explain like it doesn't mean that's only where the Lord is, but that's where God is. And we want to be in that land. So, let me pray. And then let's sing. And I would encourage you to, to respond in, in whatever way the Spirit is moving you to do so. All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. And just the wonderful truth that it holds for us. And Father, there's, at times there's so many things within your word that may confuse us or, or, or may even trouble us, but God, it is enough. It is sufficient. And it is necessary and it is authoritative for our lives. Help us to glean from it all that you have for us. Lord, help us to be spurred on by it, even in this moment now. And I pray that you would, you would just grant us your spirit now to come and, and to move amongst us and to, to stir our hearts and to grip our hearts, to move us with conviction if necessary, to lead us into deeper devotion and dependence upon you. Regardless of where our lives are at the moment, if, if, if they feel nice and comfortable and, and even with a certain amount of ease, help us not get comfortable or, or complacent in that. Help us not to come to a place where we start to forget you, where, where we go periods of time without thinking of you or coming to you in prayer or coming to you in your word. Help us to always have such an intense desire, Lord, to know you, to seek out your face, God. Cause us to fall more deeply in love with you. And Lord, if, if we're now in a time of confusion or, or despair or heartache, God, I, I pray that you would come and that you would bring us comfort. Comfort that you deem necessary and not nece necessarily, God, the comfort that we want. And in that, Lord, help us to so confidently trust in you and your methods and your ways that we're able to take such great comfort and find such great peace in that to know that, God, you are the one who sits in all power and authority over all of the earth and there is nothing ever in all of eternity that will ever thwart any of your plans. Oh, God, I cannot even begin to express the amount of comfort that that should bring us. And it's such, as I think about it right now, such an otherworldly mindset, such a heavenly mindset for us to think of you and your ways in our lives in this way. Because it seems so opposite. It seems so counterintuitive to the ways that we want to do things. But God... Your word is clear. Help us to believe it. Help us to trust in you, no matter what may come. And in all of this, 
The purpose is to bring you glory and to make much of the name of Jesus Christ. And I ask all of this through the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.